1: Those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folks' 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts.
2: Hello, and welcome to The Breakdown the podcast that uncovers the greatest sounds and stories in bluegrass music, one iconic record at a time.
1: I'm Emma John, author, journalist, and all-round bluegrass novice.
2: And I'm Patrick McGonigal, fiddle player with the Lonely Heartstring Band. And today we're going to talk about John Hartford's Aeroplane, uh, which is a phenomenal record that came out in 1971 on Warner Brothers Records and was one of the first records that really took bluegrass in a whole new direction. Uh, Sam Bush, the great mandolin player, referred to this record as the the beginning of jam grass, uh, which is now a huge genre especially in Colorado, but it was really a a brand new way of playing and thinking about traditional music, Um, and it featured the phenomenal, uh, they're now known as the Aeroplane Band. It was John Hartford, of course, and Randy Scruggs playing bass. Randy Scruggs is Earl Scruggs' son. The great Tut Taylor playing dobro and some mandolin. Vassar Clements playing the fiddle. Norman Blake playing guitar. And most of the songs, except for Turn Your Radio On, were written by John Hartford.
3: Come and listen in to the radio station where the mighty hosts of heaven sing. Turn your radio on. Turn your radio on. Turn your radio on. Turn your radio on. If you want to hear the songs of Zion come from the land of end the spring, get in touch with God. Get in touch with God. Turn, turn your radio on. Turn your radio on
1: so what happens is that turning radio on is both the first track and the last track of this album Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. the entire album is bookended by this this gospel um praise and worship but there's lots and lots of naughtiness in the middle of this album
2: there is but it's also like i could see john hartford in his kind of steampunk way thinking about the radio as this kind of god you know the music in the air it's 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 like it's a perfect song for him to choose to set this up because it's it's ambiguous as to whether or not the the god of this gospel song is you know what it is who it is i I, so it's just perfect maybe the music is the god to to john
1: yeah and I and I think it's I think also there's this stuff in there that, that would not be objectionable even if you were a hardened atheist because I that I love that lyric, mm-hmm. get a little get a little taste of love eternal, get a little heaven in your soul. I mean, yeah. who doesn't want a little heaven in their soul? That's beautiful, <laughs> for
2: sure. And then it goes right into Steamboat Whistle Blues, which is one of his most popular songs. He's mixing bluegrass with this hippie movement with rock and roll and with kind of marijuana culture, but he's also being so critical of of nostalgia while embracing nostalgia and critical of bluegrass while embracing bluegrass and this song I think is that you know he even he's the grass is all synthetic, and we're not really sure about the food you know he he must be self aware that when he's talking about grass, he's mentioning. Marijuana and bluegrass and grass, grass. Like, I love how this song.
1: Wow. Just... I, that's really fascinating. I did not, I did not come up with all those, with all those grasses <laughs> in my head. I should actually, I should say right here, right now, since this is the, uh, the start of the podcast. Um, I apologize to anybody who finds my pronunciation of bluegrass problematic. I, I cannot, as a British person, say bluegrass. It's, it's impossible. <laughs> my, my muscles in my mouth don't work that way. So um, I'm officially putting the arse in bluegrass in this
3: podcast. <laughs> oh, While well, the city's grown up where it looks all square Like a crossword puzzle on the landscape It looks like an electric shaver Now where the courthouse used to be The grass is all synthetic And we don't know for sure about the food the only thing we know
1: for sure is that I actually had a different association with um, mm. with that line. I don't know if you have you ever heard of a a poem by John Betjeman called Slough? No. Okay, so John Betjeman was um, a uh, he was one of our poet laureates in Britain. So there's, he writes this comic poem that goes. Come friendly bombs and fall on slough. It isn't fit for humans now. There isn't grass to graze a cow, swarm over death. Come bombs and blow to smithereens, those air-conditioned bright canteens. <laughs> tinned fruit, tinned meat, tinned milk, tinned beans, tinned mines, tinned breath. And as, oh, yeah. as soon as I read that, the grass is all synthetic and, and we're not so sure about the food, I, I immediately thought about this poem um, and wondered whether John Hartford would ever have read any John Benjamin.
2: Oh, man, if not, it's he's struck on the exact same theme. And there's also, I feel like in that poem, a similar sense of there's an irony to it, you yeah. know? There's an irony to, to the way they both say that. But I love it. I love, I mean, I, I think Steamboat Whistle Blues is one of my favorite all-time songs, and, and it's because of that sly way that he's so critical of of everything, you know? he's He's just... In his own little way, very relaxed, stoned way of just kind of saying, "Who knows what's happening in the world?" And I love it; it's so good.
1: Um, we should say that it's coming out of a a specific love of boats as well. That this right the whole course. the whole reason for this song is that he um, he loved to pilot those boats.
2: Hmm. Yeah, he was a steamboat pilot. Um, and uh just last week uh, when i was in nashville got to see the house that he lived in until he died right on the cumberland river right on a, a beautiful bend in the cumberland river and his house sat over the river and he had built on the very top of his house a kind of glass turret that just sits right at the top so he could go up and sit in his little glass turret on the top of his house and watch the tugboats pushing coal barges up and down the cumberland river
3: Well, I started out to be a towboat man, but I never got the hang of a ratchet bar. I was growing up a deckin' in the Illinois train with coal dust in my ear. I got stuck in the ice on Christmas Eve and I froze my ass, it's true. I just a shivering and a shaking the down south case of them steamboat. Coal
1: dust in my ear, that is something you would not know if you hadn't been on the boat. If, if, you, if you hadn't actually been in this world and done this, you would have written... Um, coal dust in my hair or coal dust on my face or in my eyes the fact that the coal dust is like stuck in his ear just is proof that this is a guy who's stood there and had to pull coal dust out of his ear so my question Patrick is do you know which city he's referring to
2: I do not. You
1: do not. That's interesting, because uh, I don't think it's I don't think it's apparent at all either, and uh, so I did a little bit of digging <laughs> to try and find out. Uh, the only way I managed to work this out uh, was because I found a sheet uh, a picture of actually some alternative lyrics that he wrote originally, wow, which I think this song is called "Them San Fernando Hills." And there are lines about since the sun fell down on Hollywood in the mountains, uh, at which point I thought, wait, okay, he's talking about Los Angeles. Uh,
2: Oh, and and he had just moved back from L.A. right before he made this record. He moved back to Nashville.
1: Exactly. Which I think gives the gives this idea that he has the steamboat whistle blues and he's he's sitting in Los Angeles and and feeling Mm. this nostalgia for um for a different way of life it makes it even more compelling somehow.
2: Oh yeah, I love that. For sure.
1: I also discovered what the electric razor building was because um uh, <laughs> I just I just went down a rabbit hole and Well, and
2: you're a journalist. <laughs> this is this is your area of expertise is finding out the information.
1: I discovered that the Los Angeles courthouse was demolished in 1936. And then uh, there was a a building. um, I think it was like another justice defense building that was uh, built on that site in 1970. So the year before this came out. And if you if you look up the Clara Shortridge False Criminal Justice Center on Google Hold on, Maps. Say, say, that,
2: say that one more time.
1: <laughs> it's called the Clara Shortridge Faults Criminal Justice Center. OK. <laughs> and if you look that up on Google Maps and you do a street view, you will see that it does look like uh, the head of an electric razor.
2: Back in the good old days.
1: So it's um, a bit like what you're saying about, I mean, it's 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 two nostalgia songs back to back.
2: For sure. That's clearly I,
1: the theme of this record.
2: For sure. And, and I think he can get away with it just in, you know, the way that I feel both of these songs right off the bat. I think he can get away with this over the top nostalgia. I mean, the song is called Back in the Good Old Days. He's well aware of what that would, what any listener would assume before hearing that song. But the way that he does it, I mean, he's so uh, ironically critical of nostalgia. You know, he's just it fully embraces it with its irony. But also, I think he legitimately feels this this nostalgia. I mean, it's it's brilliant. It's it's one of those things that you know, there's a handful of people in the world that could pull something like that off. But
3: of course, John Hartford is one of them.
1: we should say that that's kind of important to bluegrass as a whole. I mean, nostalgia is almost like the base element of bluegrass music.
3: We've
1: talked a lot about the lyrics and the meanings, and we haven't really talked about the sound and uh, the instruments yet and mm-hmm. i think that the fiddle solo at the end of back in the good old days that's really interesting to me uh it's it's completely um it's it's solo in the sense of the other instruments have dropped out they've disappeared mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and this this violin just keeps playing for a lot longer than you think it would <laughs>
2: I wonder if they were like, okay, Vassar, you're just going to play this one out as long as you want. Or if Vassar just went for it. I could see Vassar being the kind of guy that would do it.
1: So for people De- who who don't know so much about bluegrass, Vassar, we're yes. talking about Vassar Clements.
2: One of the most legendary bluegrass fiddlers of all time. And I also think one of those guys, I mean, he's the perfect choice for someone like John Hartford. Vassar was playing with and recording with Bill Monroe by the time he was 16 years old. So he was bluegrass as they come. He really knew and was part of the evolution of early bluegrass. And yet here he is in 1971, hanging out with John Hartford and Randy Scruggs and Todd Taylor and Norman Blake, and and smoking weed, hypothetically, and really stretching out. And, and I've heard from a few people that they think this is kind of the first record where Vassar really found that sound that became something that we all identify so strongly with as fiddle players, uh, which he took to Old and in the Way, uh, the instrumental record of, of the Bluegrass Album Band, which is volume six, all these records that are so incredible with Vassar's style. This is, I think, one of the first times that he really found that sound because he was so liberated in, in the studio with all these guys. And moments like this end of back in the good old days when he's just able to literally invoke an image of an old guy walking down a dirt road Kind of playing the fiddle as he walks down this road, you know it's it's perfect. It's one of, I mean, as a fiddle player, I just you know, that's one of the great recorded moments of fiddle for all of those reasons. I think.
1: Hey everyone, this is Alex Hargraves, and uh, I'm currently on tour in Florida, which just so happens to be the home state of the great Vassar Clements. So uh, I'm just here thinking about Vassar's music and his incredible contribution to the world of fiddle playing. He, you know, he found a way to get just incredibly unique sounds out of the instrument, um, you know, playing in between the notes, if you will, and making it sound like a horn section or, uh, you know, a pedal steel or you name it, all sorts of crazy things. But at the end of the day, it really just feels like a direct and genuine expressive way of playing the fiddle, which is something that's um, really had a h- huge impact on me, and I know a lot of other fiddle players, and just musicians as well. Play
3: fiddle play all day long I hear you screaming at me away, the
2: only fiddle player that gets away with playing a solo all the time. It's just, when he's actually soloing, they push him up in the mix, because he's just he just played and he played beautiful licks and, and kind of melodic lines, but the whole time. He was never a guy that was too worried about, uh, you know, bowing out for the for the vocals or something. He managed to have this aesthetic of playing all the time, which you can hear on this record.
3: Well, I wrote this song with a vamp in the middle.
2: As a musician, someone who thinks about the studio, you know, it's one of those fantastic moments where you know there's the there's the two approaches to studio i think about it like it's the beatles versus the rolling stones the beatles would go in and just layer upon layer and edit and edit and make this kind of very tight clean perfect studio sound and the rolling stones i think of as the other end of that spectrum which is just go in and and get drunk and throw down all your emotions all in a room with a handful of mics together And those are kind of the two spectrums and they both have their ups and downs. And this record to me is, especially in Bluegrass, one of the classic examples of capturing a vibe in the studio. They're they're clearly sitting around in a circle, having a great time playing music together and we get to be lucky listeners. Just, you know, we get to be the fly on the wall. How did your first impressions take you on this?
1: Okay, so the first thing I should say is, Quite by chance, I ended up listening to this record for the first time on a plane. (laughs) Which is completely perfect. Um, I was flying back to the UK and uh, actually they would play, it, it had got to up on the hill where they do the boogie as we were taking off and yes. <laughs> it it actually i think there is kind of like some natural high kind of like embedded in that song because i have never felt so euphoric
3: way up on the hill, way up on the hill where they do the, boogie. the boogie. i wonder what they're doing when they
1: Immediately, that's followed by somebody yeah. blowing raspberries. I didn't know that was coming. That's if you don't know that the track boogie is is what it is. Uh, it's really quite disturbing.
3: Hey baby, wanna boogie, boogie woogie woogie, woogie with me? Hey baby, I wanna boogie, boogie woogie woogie with me.
1: I don't know what that track is. I don't know what he was thinking, what they were thinking. Do you have any idea?
2: Well, I've I've heard stories. Uh, Hopefully, we can get someone to uh, enlighten us further. But I had heard that that was just something he did as kind of a gag.
1: In this case, I feel like we should send an email to David Bromberg and ask him what the heck is going on with this track.
4: Patrick, this is David Bromberg. Um, About uh, Boogie, I don't know where or why Don wrote it. He sang it to me one afternoon and I said, let's put it down. And we did. Um, He did not want it on the album, though, uh, he told me afterwards. But... um, John's rule for recording this album was that neither he nor any of the other musicians should hear note one until it was all mixed and sequenced. Uh, in other words, I produced it pretty much in a vacuum. We did a group of sessions. It must have been a week or so and uh, long. And uh, then I came back to New York and John called me up. and He said, I can't wait to hear it. Uh, and I said, well, I think we have to go back in and do more. And he was very angry and hung up on me. Uh, Half an hour later, he called back and apologized. And he said, okay, I said that you could produce it your way. We go back in. And so we went back in and had a second set of sessions. It never occurred to me that it was a financial, it could have been a financial question. Um, You know, John might have had to pour money into it or he didn't want to spend that much. I don't know, but it never occurred to me at the time. And of course, now I, I know a little better, I think. I think that might have been the first thing I ever produced. Um, but, you know, he trusted me with it. He actually eventually put out all the outtakes, uh, which were nice tracks. But what I said to him was that um, I, I felt that half of what we recorded in the first group of sessions was great stuff, and the other half was okay. And I thought we could get a whole LP uh, of great stuff. Uh, people have told me that he told them that he chose me because he wanted the New York sensibility, and the New York sensibility used to be that we'd sit around, smoke dope, and play Sally Gooden for an hour and a half, uh, and that kind of caught with some people. Now,
3: first thing is to say this.
1: I think we should talk about his look and his his attitude and mm-hmm. and let's just face it his kind of sexuality at the time of this record for I, sure I think that is a fascinating thing if you look at pictures of him maybe before he has the beard so this is possibly when he's still in LA um, because by the time he's recording this record he, he does have the hippie look and, and the long beard yeah. and the long hair but well and he's you,
2: hanging out in Southern California in the late 60s you can understand
1: that's going to happen <laughs> yeah yeah. But there are pictures of him where he's clean shaven and he, mm. he still has this kind of um, I guess, chin length hair, maybe shoulder length hair. And to me he looks like Mick Jagger. He's he's For got sure. this slender sinuous sulky sexuality. <laughs> he's got that was, he's, that was some
2: great alliteration there.
1: He's got all the S's
2: He's
1: got a pout. Um, I I've seen one picture of him where, where he's got he's holding a cigarette behind his back and I'm just looking at him thinking, Yeah, like he probably does have the moves like Jagger.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and he was he was hanging around in a scene at that age too, or at that scene in the in the sixties, where he was with all the kind of suave country stars and the Glenn Campbells of the world and he had he had that he was a, like kind of a, an, a the attractive young star, and then so he decides to go down the hippie road.
1: It's interesting because he had split up with his wife the year before as well. Mm, I didn't know that. He um, yeah, his first wife um, Betty, she mm-hmm. had. Uh, I think moved to Los Angeles with him when he moved to Los Angeles yeah. and she says there's there's a great book um, which uh, I have been reading called Pilot of a Steamboat Aeroplane by Andrew Vaughan um, and to be honest if you want to know more about how this record came about I mean I cannot recommend this book highly enough because it's got it mm-hmm. all in there uh, but it talks about um, it's got some interviews uh, including Uh, with members of his family and talks about how he really what what they what they say is lost his way when he went to los angeles um and by which i think they mean he basically chased women and (sighs) did a lot of drugs i think that's yeah that's the honest truth of it and um and to be honest i think you can tell from this record that he chased women can't can't you
2: Oh yeah, I mean the the first girl I loved that that song, or you know, um, the girl like kind of the girl I left behind me, sort of thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure.
1: There's definitely and, and this sense. In fact, I think there's a line in the first girl I loved, and I can't remember what the line is. I don't have it up in front of me, but um, there's essentially a line that says, "I'm never gonna get enough sex."
3: I regret my life. Away. Been long enough to make a love to all the women that i like to or at least of all to live with the ones I've loved
1: and I'm never i never mean, I a think it's pretty clear in this record what he's into yeah. you've got yeah. first girl I loved you've got um uh vamp in the middle he's yeah. he's talking yeah. about you know he got a girl by playing the fiddle yeah. and the harder that Boogie. I fiddle the harder that she comes along yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's not subtle. This stuff. No, I kind of have struggled a little bit with his depiction of and um, attitude to women in this record. I think if there's mm-hmm. if there's one thing I I don't feel completely on board with, it's that I feel like women in this record are are often pickups or there's a kind of casual disregard for them. Um, you know, even the girl you know, even the first girl he loves, you know, uh he worried about it a little bit. But that's all. <laughs> you know yeah. he doesn't yeah. he doesn't come across well here. Um I don't I tell you what else I don't like. I don't like um two bit whore in, in Steamboat Whistle Blues. I think yes, that phrase sure. just jumps out and jars and you know, you can argue you can say, well, it's it's the businessman who's who's thinking of this woman as a two bit whore but actually I don't buy that. I think it comes across as that's you know that's, that's John Hartford's the term is, he's
2: using. Yeah. yeah.
1: He's using that term and so there are there are numerous points like that in this record where I I feel like he has he's clearly gone to Los Angeles with like we said fame and money already and um and he's got this rock and roll swagger. And mm. I think that kind of oozes, oozes out. So, so I think it's there also kind of in the timbre of his voice. I mean, I know that is his voice, but there is that kind of like sexual confidence in that low voice that he has.
2: Definitely. I, I agree completely. And I also think that in this, listening to this record in this moment in time, uh, those elements become even more abundantly clear. I'm curious about other people's take on that because I think that's a very good point. Let's talk about uh, so tear down the Grand Ole Opry.
1: Yes, let's talk about I, that because that uh, is interesting.
2: <laughs> it's very interesting. So,
1: can you uh, just explain, like, to the, to people again who are who are coming at this from more of my angle? Uh, can you just explain? what this song is about and the the significance of what it's about
2: so for those of you who don't know the Grand Ole Opry uh, in short the Grand Ole Opry I would say is why country music is famous in the United States the Grand Ole Opry uh, forever and ever was recorded at the Ryman Auditorium which is a, a, one of the most famous buildings in Nashville and the Opry and itself
1: is a radio show that used to it's come a radio out show on the weekends on I
2: du- think. on WSM AM radio I'll, I'll keep it simple, but the Grand Ole Opry was, was the way that country music was spread around. But it really, I think it changed country because it, it allowed people to all from all different places in the United States to listen to the same stuff and all of a sudden have a singular approach to a sound. And so it, it really kind of unified uh, country musicians and, across the country.
3: From the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville, Tennessee, the world capital of country music and the scene of the 5th and your country music this jockey festival, it's your Grand Ole Opry starring Roy Acuff.
1: What we should say is that the Ryman Auditorium was losing the Grand Ole Opry. So that's the actual incident that he's referring to. It's not that the Grand Ole Opry was going to disappear and cease to exist. It was that it was moving out of the Ryman Auditorium in downtown Nashville and into a new purpose-built home that was going to be bigger and be able to take more audience capacity.
2: Right, Opryland. And so maybe he saw he saw that as, as indicative of a trend in the music and, and in the musician's world as well. Because, yeah, I, I, every time I listen to that song... I wonder specifically where he's what what what, what he's what he's going for because of course he's the you know the Ryman is is the uh, the the high church of, of bluegrass and country music and the Grand Ole Opry and the Ryman seemed inseparable. Do you think that he thinks that by leaving the Ryman, the Grand Ole Opry is finished? Is that you? Do you think what he's saying there?
1: I mean I think that's what he he is saying on like the surface level and I yeah. think it's clearly rubbish <laughs> I mean that's <laughs> yeah. just clearly not true I think he's taking um he's taking a stance that I would expect from a much older more traditional more conservative guy and and it's yeah. very bizarre to me that here's this guy who is young and Smoking weed and living the life and being incredibly progressive creatively. And he seems adamant that, you know, things should not change and that the Grand Ole right. Opry shouldn't move out of the Ryman. And I think yeah. it, and it sounds like a, a, the funny thing is that this song sounds like a protest anthem.
3: They're gonna tear down, down the
1: Grand Ole
3: Opry. Gonna tear down the sound that goes around our song They're gonna tear, tear down, down the grand old opry Another good thing is done gone on, done gone on
1: I've heard it said that this is the, the kind of contradiction of this record, that he... In coming back to his roots and leaving Los Angeles and and saying, no, no, I want to go back to my roots and I want to play this um, acoustic music and, and use uh, tradition um, like in the, you know, like the gospel song, like the, uh, the fiddle tunes and the banjo tunes that are on here. Uh, at the same time as he's doing that, just by doing that, he has kind of unlocked an entire new genre of music.
2: And yet... It took years and years and years for, for his innovation with this record to actually mean something to the world because no one heard it. Warner Brothers thought it was unsellable. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't even have a country promotion department at the time, and they just threw it on a shelf and let it sit there.
4: I did think that um, they're going to tear down the Grand Ole Opry should have been a country single. But um, at this point in time, Warner Brothers had never had a country anything. You know, uh, they weren't a country label. And in point of fact, they hated the album. I flew out to Los Angeles with it and played it for the president, and he he didn't say anything. And I left, and, I, you know, years and years later, I realized um, and confirmed uh, they hated it. What they wanted was was uh, a record that had 12 Gentle on my minds on it, I'm pretty sure. And uh, that may have even been what they expected. They certainly didn't uh, expect uh, bluegrass or what came to be known as newgrass. It's knowing that your door
3: is always open and your path is free to walk. That makes me ten for fear of, of,
2: life of life saying postmodern in a podcast. I, I the first thing that I wrote down about this record is postmodern.
1: Yeah. Uh, station break. Station break is totally postmodern.
3: Bill Randall, 650, Dorothy S. Ma'am, the Axel Wide and Peppermint Endurance Company in Bashful Johnny C. Home of the Grand Old Conglomeration, Fanny Hill University, and the Bathtub of the South. It's 730.
2: If you're if you're passively listening to that, if that came on the radio, if you were driving in your car, thinking about something completely different, and that came on and played, you wouldn't even bat an eye. Yeah, you know, it's so it's so great, and yet when you listen to it, it's complete gibberish. But it's it, he's, and it's kind of I guess that's almost what he's what he's done in a lot of the elements of this record. He's grabbed an aesthetic so thoroughly and twisted it into something else, and yet somehow, even though it's totally thematically and 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 texturally totally a new thing it still retains the core essence of that original thing that it's pulling on and I feel like that's exactly what he does in that moment
1: so clearly we could talk for days about this record and in fact if you want to listen to more people talking about John Hartford there is on YouTube a six-hour retrospective called Stashed Behind Your Couch so I recommend that if you really haven't had enough of people talking at you about John Hartford. Uh, We want to say thank you to Andrew Vaughan, the author of Pilot of a Steam-Powered Aeroplane, which is available um, on Amazon. And also to Katie Hogue, who is John Hartford's daughter and is instrumental in preserving his legacy. Uh, And also thank you to Trevor McKenzie at Appalachian State University for helping out with other research. Until our next episode, we would invite you to get a little heaven in the sun.